Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, we're going to talk about the latest attempt to solve the Eurozone crisis with the Greek debt swap with bondholders. Private sector indebtedness has fallen, but at the cost of a significant increase in the indebtedness to the public sector. Also, the Deutsche Bank management shakeup. The main thing that it reflects in terms of strategy is a shift towards emerging markets. And finally, the changes to pay at Barclays and the latest row there. They're paying six million pounds just to cover this one-off tax for Bob, and they're only paying a hundred million total corporation tax for a year. Joining me to discuss these topics are Charlene Goff, our retail banking correspondent, Daniel Schaefer, our new investment banking correspondent, and we have a guest, Sonny Kapoor, who's managing director of EU think tank Redefine. Sonny, if we could start with you on this topic of the Eurozone crisis and particularly this so-called PSI, the private sector involvement agreement with the bondholders of Greek sovereign debt, which finally, after many months of painful negotiations, went through last week and we saw basically the Greek government save themselves potentially 100 billion as a result of the deal. Well, that's correct. Now, the headline fall in the Greek indebtedness is less because part of the remaining 50% 50 or so of the face value of the debt is partially guaranteed. So what it has meant is that, yes, the private sector indebtedness has fallen, but at the cost of a significant increase in the indebtedness to the public sector. And so this was essentially the one shot that Greece had to reduce its debt levels and probably should have gone even further because any future restructuring, because the new bonds are under UK law and are partially publicly guaranteed, and the rest of the debt is all owed to other governments in the euro area and the IMF, and any future restructuring is going to be much, much harder. So I think for the foreseeable future, Greece has reached the limit of how much it can reduce its debt levels by, and it's not enough. So for the bondholders, they've got a good deal out of this in the short term, and Greece has maybe not got as good a deal as everyone's been suggesting. This is one of those rare instances where one would say that a 75% net present value haircut is a relatively good deal because the alternative was even worse, which was actually getting nothing at all. And yes. that's why you saw relatively high participation rates. Yes, remind us what we got. We got about 80-something percent participation. Overall. Exactly. And again, it shows the desperation of Greece that it still had to go and use the collective action clauses to bring it up to 95% because there was this, no margin of error. This was a voluntary agreement, but once they got to a certain level, they were able to enact the so-called collective action clauses, which are basically a squeeze out for those bondholders who didn't sign up voluntarily, which in turn then triggered a partial default formally of Greece. Now, what's happening with the CDS on Greece? Because that was one big area of doubt as whether the, the insurance policies for default would pay out. Well, because the CDS market has now been triggered, in a way, it's a big relief to people who hold billions.
billions and billions of these CDSs because if it hadn't been, essentially what would have looked like a duck, talked like a duck, walked like a duck would have not been a duck. And that would have seriously put a question mark over the efficacy of these agreements. But everybody had been so desperate to avoid these being triggered early on, especially the ECB, but also a lot of banks in Europe had been desperate for these not to be triggered in any way. Therefore, the whole farrago of a voluntary agreement. Was there any point in doing it in, in the first place? As I a mean, deal? We've, we've been massive opponents of the whole fuss being made about triggering CDSs because it's been very clear from the outset that the net amount of outstanding CDSs was negligible. There's a distributive issue here. Somebody benefits and somebody loses out. But the gross amount was about 80 billion. The net amount, as we now know, is, was only about 3 billion. And that figure has been known for a long time. So my best guess is a mid-level bureaucrat who didn't quite understand the difference between gross and net decided to draw a red line at mm. some point in the negotiation process. And the way these negotiations work is once it was a red line, nobody with any authority at the same level was able to question that. And now, in retrospect, we've seen that all this fuss was much ado about nothing. So you've got no concern that the CDS being triggered will cause any more distress for anybody, uh, any European banks, for example, that have written on a net basis huge exposures. Uh, the Greek banks, for example, which might have written these CDS themselves. You don't think that's going to cause any dreadful trouble? From all the information we have, and again, much of this was already available before, I don't think that this is a grave cause of concern, no. So what, if any, are the causes for concern going forward on, on Greece? Well, Greece is going to need more money, and that will, again, have to come from the public sector. So, of course, the bondholders are not out of the woods. But as I said, I think it's going to be much harder to squeeze them again, particularly under UK law, and particularly because the guarantees that the public sector has provided will have to be called in. So there is no way that politically it's going to be easy for Greece to inflict losses, direct or indirect, on the taxpayers of Germany and Austria, etc. So the solution is probably that Greece will be on life support for the foreseeable future. It will stay in the headlines for the next five to 10 years, if not more, primarily getting funded by the IMF, the EU, and with continuing support from the European Central Bank with very little role for the private sector. But for the bondholders, which large proportion of which are, are the banks, the worst of the pain is, is probably over. I think so, yes. I think these calls of them being hacked again very soon into the future, I think those are vastly exaggerated because the political cost of bringing that in would be very high. Again, it's risky. It's a country with a very, very deep economic problem. But it's definitely probably not going to happen anytime in the near future. One thing for certain, as you say, five to ten years of pain for the Greeks themselves. Sony, thanks very much for that. You're welcome. On to Deutsche Bank now. And we had some of the first evidence, really, of the new regime at Deutsche Bank asserting themselves. So we've got new co-chief executives coming in to replace the current CEO, Joe Ackerman, in a couple of months' time. And Shu Jane, the current investment banking head, and Jürgen Fitchen, who is currently head of the German business are due to take over in May. But Daniel, they've already made some changes. Last week, we saw a few interesting appointments. Yes, that's right. Basically, what has been announced was three things, really. One thing that has been long expected, 
expected is that they announced who's going to take over the investment bank, which so from Andrew Jane from Andrew when Jane, he moves oh, on. I was just going to say, yeah, he's, yeah. he's basically Andrew Jane has built up the investment bank to the global investment bank that it is today. And the big question was who's going to take over there. So what they've basically done is they reinstalled co-head structure, which Deutsche used to have in the mm-hmm. past, and which frankly many investment banks do have at their operations. And so they brought in Colin Fan and Rob Rankin, who are both SS co-heads, who, who are both know Andrew Jane for a very long time, have worked with him closely. And the second thing they've Just done, quickly on, yeah. on the investment bank, do you expect that to lead to any great changes in strategy or is it just going to be more of the same really going forward? I think it's the main thing that it reflects in terms of strategy is a shift towards emerging markets and them trying to catch even more market share in the emerging markets. Because Rob Rankin is yeah, at the moment is, in yeah. Asia, right? He's Colin, Colin, Colin Fan is head of credit and emerging markets. So he's okay. got a big emerging markets footprint and Rob Rankin is head of Asia Pacific yeah. at Deutsche Bank. So that clearly points into the direction and where Deutsche wants to put its stamp on in the future. That's interesting. Yeah. So that was one vaguely expected move, maybe less expected with the other couple of appointments. That yeah, we saw. the main thing is that Andrew Jane Jung Fitchen uh, announced that, or well, they didn't announce it. It just, it just we uh, found it, out. We found <laughs> out. Yeah, uh, but it's clearly been them pushing for it. Two of the executive board members, Lamberti and Bensinger, they are leaving. Bensinger is the chief risk officer, and Lamberti is the COO, and they are being replaced by three bankers who are all of them coming from the investment banking side so it's right. clearly Mr. Jane put in his stamp on the management. And already investment banking is hugely important for Deutsche I think on average generating about 80% of earnings in recent years. Does this mean that they're going to therefore become even more reliant on investment banking or is it just using the best investment bankers they have to build up other areas? Because one of the appointments was an investment banker to head the new private banking wealth management Mm. division that's being created, which is obviously not investment banking, but can bring investment banking disciplines perhaps. I think that's actually, frankly, going to be the biggest challenge for Andrew Jane, both from a strategy perspective as as well as from, if you'd say, political or public perspective, because here already the appointments have caused a huge public backlash in Germany, a criticism of basically this being an investment banking takeover. What and it, not easy because he's not German as and well. Yeah, and his, his problem is, yeah, he, I mean, he's Indian-born uh, British uh, national who, who lives in London. And in Germany, there's always been a bit of... Germany doesn't really like Deutsche Bank. The German public doesn't really like it because they, they've always had the big investment banking footprint that Deutsche has, has always always caused politicians and other observers to to criticize Deutsche for quite a lot of things. And Andrew Jane's problem is going to be, first, he wants to strategically uh, put Deutsche on a broader footing by expanding the private banking and asset management business, which hasn't been a success in the past for Deutsche. And of course, they're just in the middle of selling a lot of their international asset management at the moment, but they want to refocus what they have at the end of that process and build it up again. Yeah, Yeah. to, to create less cyclical business yeah. uh, that, that kind of goes is also maybe counter-cyclical to the investment more volatile yeah. uh, investment banking business yeah. so he will have to expand that at the same time what he wanted to do with these management changes was to bring in people who are loyal to him whom he knows whom he worked with yeah and to also reflect what has happened at Deutsche in the past, which is an expansion of the investment banking business which wasn't really reflected in the, in the management structure so far no. so 
in a way, he's bringing in his own people mm. and he knows strategically he's going to have to change the bank in a way that would expand the retail and as a management side of the mm -hmm. business. But he's kind of trying to do it with the people he knows yeah. who come from investment banking. So yeah. it's, it's slightly... Yeah, you know. <laughs> I guess They're certainly smart. Yeah. So uh, yeah. let's hope that it works out for them. And um, we'll be watching that story as it follows through over the coming months. Thanks for that, Daniel. Charlene, moving on to you as the kind of third person. We have three stories today and a, a specialist on each one. So just to quiz you and also Daniel on the Barclays story from last week. Yet again, there was with Barclays as a bit of controversy, uh, maybe expectedly so, because this is the pay story, which everyone's been waiting for, for for several weeks, disclosure of what top people at Barclays got paid. And, well, a few controversial things, but perhaps most controversial, the idea that nearly six million pounds of tax payable by CEO Bob Diamond was actually paid by Barclays. What was that all about? I know, you almost couldn't make it up. This was a one-off benefit that was paid to Bob Diamond, the chief executive, when he relocated to the UK from the US at the start of last year to become chief executive. Listeners will remember that he was former head of the investment banking business. Yeah, and for a couple of years he'd been in the States, particularly heading the integration of the Lehman exactly. Brothers business that they bought. So he came back and they felt that this was a tax charge that would have been triggered because he came back to the UK and this was related to the capital gains tax that he was due to pay on certain shares that he'd been allocated as various share awards the previous year. And they didn't think it was fair that he should have to fit that bill himself, given that had he stayed in New York, it wouldn't have existed. So they paid that. To us, we just were quite astounded by the scale of that, as I think were many pay experts that we spoke to on the day. I mean, you do get this tax equalisation is a fairly common occurrence. But the fact that this was very niche situation, I think, with this capital gains tax issue, and also the scale of it really took people by surprise. And also the fact that, you know, when you add that into his pay for 2011, which totted up to 19 million when you add in a whole array of the long -term share awards and, and, and so dividend on. shares. And yeah. we'll go into that in a bit more detail later. You know, that took his total uh, awards up to nearly 25 million for 2011. And, you know, in a year where he himself only a few weeks ago had said the bank's performance had been unacceptable, he had delayed a key profitability target and returns had actually fallen quite sharply for that year. All of that compounded with the fact that this was supposed to be a year of restraint, I think, just got people's back up all over again. And Daniel, what, what have investors been saying about this? Presumably, uh, as Charlene says, the performance wasn't great last year. They can't be particularly happy about this. Indeed. Um, unlike when they announced the whole bonus pool a few weeks ago, when there were some investors who were willing to speak out publicly, they were now less willing to do so because <laughs> I think guess if, you know, it's about personal pay. But, but we had a few weeks ago, when the results were announced, the Association of British Insurers, for instance, speaking out very loudly against mm. what they saw as a bonus pool that, that there was shrinking not fast enough, given that Barclays' earnings, their pre-tax profit went down by 3% in the past year. Yeah. And the share price has gone down a lot, obviously, as well. So there was a feeling that they didn't do enough in terms of the way they reduce pay? I think for Bob Diamond's own pay, I mean, there are a number of issues that are sort of one-off issues that I think we should think about. Some of these share award schemes coming through from prior years related to the time that he was spent as investment banking head rather than chief executive. So, so in that sense, it's an exceptional big. year. Yes. Yeah, in a way. Uh, you also had this tax charge. I mean, when you look purely at what he was awarded for 2011 for his performance in that year, his bonus was... 2.7 million the year before 
as head of the investment bank, it had been 6.5 million. So there are a few comparables in there where you can see a sharp drop. But then you, you look at his salary, it's completely the reverse. It went from 250,000 to 1.35 million. So the structure of his packages is different. But I think these previous share awards coming through definitely had a big effect. You look as well at the two co-heads at the investment bank, Rich Ritchie and Jerry Domitia, and their overall pay was down to about six and a half, six point seven million. And this previous is way year, down. Yeah, really? the previous year they both were awarded 10 million for yeah. 2010. We haven't yet, though, had the disclosures from Barclays about how much those two individuals and other senior people at the bank took home in 2011 related to prior year share awards. We only had those for Bob Diamond, so we should right. get those this week. And that would have significantly boosted the pay of many senior executives. Which previously in, in 2010, that took Mr. Delmissier and Mr. Ritchie up to very high levels, right? Yeah, they, 30 they both, or 40 million each. Yeah, well, they both got 30 million through the prior share awards, which yeah. took their total. Total pay up to 40. Yeah. So yes, huge sums. Also, one thing to add, maybe to be fair, is that for last year, what they got is it's all non-cash in the bonus and it's all deferred, which is a big difference. So structurally, regulators are going to be happy about that and shareholders, I guess, because it's more uh, kind of open to clawback. Yeah, that's what they want. Yeah. 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 Nonetheless, I guess from a populist point of view, from a political point of view, this is going to do nothing coming only a couple of weeks after another tax row, which Barclays had been involved with in terms of its avoidance. It's just going to irk people even more. And I think we heard Lord Oakshot from the Lib Dems express some pretty grave misgivings on Friday. Isn't that right? Exactly. I mean, he he came out and said, you know, the only tax Barclays ever seems to pay is for Bob on his bonus. And that obviously came, like you say, on the back of these tax avoidance schemes that Barclays was blocked from implementing that could have cost the Treasury £500 million. Also, when you look, you know, go back and look at the corporation tax figures, you know, we had that £100 million figure um, a couple of years ago. When you think about that, and then you say, well, look, they're paying £6 million just to cover this one-off tax for Bob, and they're only paying £100 million total corporation tax for a year. I mean, it's quite astonishing comparison. It is. I think Barclays is going to have a fair way to go before they rehabilitate themselves in the eyes of politicians and the public. Sadly, that's the only time we've got really left for today. I need to say thank you for Daniel's debut performance today. Thank you very much. Charlene, thanks to you as well. And thanks also to Sonny Kapoor from Redefine for uh, his guest slot with us. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can catch up on all the latest news at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Amy Tsang. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.